Welcome to the online gathering of West Village Church. My name is Andrew, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you with us. And if you are new, I just want to let you know that our heart's desire is to see you moving from being a guest with us to being part of our family. And there's a couple of really simple ways that you can do that. First of all, you can do that by texting your number to the name that you see right here on the screen below me, or simply by saying, hey, I want to get connected in whichever uh, platform you're using in the chat function. Uh, over the course of the uh, summer, we had planned to continue through through the book of Matthew, but as COVID's hit, it's caused us to adjust in quite a few different ways. And so one of the things that we had planned to do for the fall is to take our church through a journey of the four rhythms that we believe define how a church is to live together. And, uh, and so as we've evaluated, we decided that through the month of August, we are going to do that uh, online with you instead, and then also in some live gatherings, uh, as we continue to figure out what it looks like to live out the, the life of the church in this COVID reality. And so uh, those rhythms that we're going to be talking about are gather, go, give, and grow. And today it's my great privilege to talk to you about that fourth one, grow. Um, so, first question I think we all got to ask when we're talking about the rhythm of grow is what are we growing into? When you think of growth, what do you think of? I'm sitting here at the gorgeous Lankford Lake right here on a dock, and there are massive trees everywhere. Uh, so, are we talking about growth as in just upward trajectory? Well, in a sense, metaphorically, yes. You see, probably in any context that we're in, we have this idea of the ultimate or the perfect. So if you're in a job and you say, hey, I want to grow in my career or grow in my job, what are you talking about? You're talking about the place that you want to be. Whether that's, you know, personally in your own ability or in your positional status. So when we talk about growth in terms of the church, what are we talking about? What's our ultimate? Well, if you've been part of the church for any amount of time, I hope you know that the ultimate is Jesus. We say it all the time. It's like the perfect Sunday school answer. So when we're talking about growth, what we're specifically talking about is how we become more and more like Jesus. And the word that the Bible used to describe that process is discipleship. Now, there are a lot of definitions of discipleship out there. But one that I have found very helpful uh, consists of three things. So this definition of discipleship goes something like this. Discipleship is one, being with Jesus, two, becoming like Jesus, and three, doing what Jesus did. So as we grow in our discipleship, what are we doing? We're spending more time with Jesus. We're being with him more. We're becoming more and more like him. And as we become more and more like him, we're continually doing what he did. So what I want to do today is I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to spend some time in Ephesians chapter 3 and 4. And I just want to show you how this is described in the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians, for those of you who aren't familiar, was written by the Apostle Paul. And it was written to a church wrestling through what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to grow into Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to start at the end in verse 14. All right, so it says this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, 
may have power together with all of the Lord's people. And I, I want you to just pay close attention here. So Paul's praying that they would have power together with all of the Lord's people. What's the power for? To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. So according to the Apostle Paul, what he's writing to the church of Ephesus is he's saying, my prayer for you is that you intimately know God, that you spend time with him, that his love for you continually grows in your understanding. He says, by this you will grow into the fullness of Christ. So right away we see that, that Paul too makes the claim that part of the discipleship process, part of the way that we grow is by spending time together with Jesus, by abiding in Jesus as we allow his love to continually grow in us. Now let's look at that second part, being with Jesus, being like Jesus. Uh, we're going to skip ahead here to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. So Paul continues to write to the church and he says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his body for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith. And again, pay attention here, in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So right, right, right there what Paul is saying is, here's our goal, to become like Jesus. The full measure. And the way that he says we do that is through the body. Through an increasing knowledge of the Son of God. And then he continues on in verse 14, and he points out to us a, a roadblock or the opposite of maturity. He says, then you will no longer be infants. So he's using the idea of mature as like adulthood. And the inverse of that is uh, infants. Tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, again, pay attention to this. This is so good. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So Jesus says, the means by which we continue to be like, to become more like Jesus, speaking the truth in love together in community. He says, when that happens the result will be that each part does its work. So again, gifts of this, there's gifts given of leadership and their job is to equip the body. So what? So that we grow mature. And as we grow mature, what do we do? Works of service. Do what Jesus did. So you see this discipleship definition being worked it's out in Paul's writings. Now, this all sounds really good, but what is it that stops our growth? What is it that gets in the way of us becoming like Jesus? Well, Paul makes it clear in verse 14. He says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by, the, uh, by every wind of, of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. What's Paul talking about there? We're saying when you're a child, anyone can come and tell you anything and you believe it. 
your parents could come and say, hey, this is, this is what's true. And then someone else could come and say, hey, that's, that's not really true. Here, let me show you something else. And what, what Paul's essentially saying is, you know, when, we, when we're infants, we're prone to disbelieve the things of Jesus. We're prone to disbelieve he is who he says he is and he's done what he says he's done. And so someone comes along and they say, hey, Jesus is great. But guess what? There's a self-help regime that will really change your life. Like, Jesus can be part of that, but this thing is actually going to be your functional savior. And you think, okay, I'm, I'm going to go over here. Or someone comes along and they say, hey, Jesus is great, but there's all this other spiritual stuff that you need. And if you just pursue this, that's the thing that's actually going to make your life better and help you grow. And you think, okay, well, I'm going to try out all this other spiritual stuff. Paul says that that is spiritual immaturity, spiritual infancy. And the, the, the root of what's going on is ultimately unbelief. You see, in this moment, what we start doing is we stop believing that Jesus is who he says he is and he's done what he says he's done. And then we start to look to other things. And that's what we call idolatry, when we start to worship something the way that only Jesus should be worshipped. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say, this is exactly what your life was like before you came to Jesus. Verse 17, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So he says, the, you, you can't live like you used to live before you came and knew Jesus. They were futile in their thinking. You and I, before we knew Jesus, we were futile in our thinking. We thought we could figure it all out. We couldn't. It was futile. He continues on. He says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. It's willful ignorance. They have decided that we do not want to see what God has made clear to us. On the screen, I hope you can see beautiful Langford Lake. We have the Sioux Hills over here, the gorgeous water. It's an amazing, beautiful, sunny day that declares that there is a creator God out there who is glorious and worthy of our worship. And yet we live in a world where people time and time again say, I don't know what you're talking about, man. What is that? That's willful ignorance. It's hardening our hearts. It's looking around and seeing the evidence and saying, I don't care about the evidence. I want to do me. Verse 19, he says, Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So what, what does he say? He says, not only do they willfully ignore their need for Jesus, not only do we choose to reject God, do we stop believing that he is the one who can fully satisfy us, that he's the one who can empower us. But now we start to look to other things. And this is exactly what we continually go back to in Genesis chapter 3. Serpent comes and tempts Adam and Eve. What does he do? He says, you know, God's not really as good as he says he is. But here's this thing over here that's going to make it all better. And Adam and Eve believe him. So they stop believing what is true about God. And then they start looking to something else. That's what we call unbelief and idolatry. So what's the solution? If this is what stops our growth, if this is the thing that stops us becoming more and more like Jesus, 
How do we overcome that? Paul has one solution for us. And it's found right after verse 14 and verse 15, where he says, and I, I told you to pay attention, so hope you did. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? How do we become mature? By speaking the truth in love. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, what does that even mean? Is it like I go up to this person and say, hey, I got to drop a truth bomb on you. You're super overweight, but I love you. Hey, those shoes, they're hella ugly, but I love you. No, no, no. No, that's not at all what Paul's talking about here. You see, when he's talking, when he says the word truth, what he's talking about is the truth of the gospel. If you don't believe me, turn back to Ephesians chapter one. Listen to what it says. Verse 13, he's talking again to the Ephesian church and he says this, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. And then he clarifies, what is the message of truth? The gospel of your salvation. So what's Paul's claim? Paul's claim is the means by which we continue to grow as disciples, is the gospel. The gospel. The gospel applied to our hearts in loving community. So, I want to take a step back here for a moment because I think for many of us, when we think of the term discipleship, we might have a very different uh, understanding of what's going on. And I want to make sure that we don't miss exactly what Paul is saying. If you grew up in a tradition, anything similar to the tradition I grew up in, the idea of discipleship that you had was more about knowledge acquisition. And so uh, someone who was doing discipleship, they were reading their Bible a lot. They had regular spiritual disciplines. Uh, those are all really good things. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but they are usually very knowledgeable, and the Bible continued to grow in their knowledge of theological truth. In the way that we generally teach even discipleship in church contexts is through classroom learning. And all of that doesn't actually stem from the Bible. That stems from an Enlightenment view. You see, back in the Enlightenment, there was a philosopher and his name was Rene Descartes. And Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. This is how he defined what it meant to be a human being. And he claimed that we are fundamentally thinking creatures. And so the church... As a, as a whole, has oftentimes bought into this belief system. And so the way that we think we're going to grow in our discipleship is if we just accumulate more and more knowledge. But here's a problem. The problem is, is we're not primarily thinking creatures. We're primarily loving creatures. You don't believe me? Listen to this example. About a year and a half ago, I came to the realization that I wasn't living a healthy lifestyle. I didn't like the results and I wanted to make some changes. But up until that point, here's the reality. I, I knew that some of my choices weren't good. If you come over to my house and said, hey, here's this really healthy garden salad or this super greasy, high caloric Little Caesars pizza, I know that the salad's going to be the better option for me. You don't have to tell me that. You don't have to explain it to me. I know. But the decision I made was for the thing I loved. I chose the pizza nine times out of ten. Why is that? 
it wasn't because I lacked knowledge. It's because I love something more. Now, that's a super, super simple kind of cheesy example. No pun intended. But here's, here's a better one. When you come home and get mad and act out against your kids or your spouse, is it because you don't know better? I mean, it's not the case for me. I have done premarital counseling. I counsel people in their relationships. I've done premarital counseling for other people. I have written sermons on Ephesians chapter 5 where, where Paul says to the church there, like, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church who laid down his life for her. I know that the way I'm supposed to love my wife is sacrificially putting her needs above my own. And yet I can come home and be so angry with her. And is it because I don't know better? No, it's not. It's because in that moment, I'm loving something more. And usually that thing I'm loving more is myself. Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 was asked, which commandment is the greatest? And Jesus looked at the religious leader who had asked him the question. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said, all the law and the prophets can be summarized in this commandment. Jesus didn't say, know more about God, accumulate more knowledge. He said, love God. You see, the problem with our growth in discipleship, it's not fundamentally a knowledge problem. It's fundamentally a heart problem. James K. Smith, he's a, a philosopher, a theologian, and a professor, and he wrote a phenomenal book on this very subject, and it's called You Are What You Love. And in it, he works through how we are functionally loving creatures and how we functionally make decisions out of what we love. And he concludes by saying this about discipleship. He says, discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart to be intentional about what you love. And so how is it we grow? We got to learn to love Jesus more. And Paul says the way that we're going to do that is by, in loving community, speaking the gospel into each other's hearts. This is what we at West Village call gospel fluency or gospeling one another. So you may be asking yourself, okay, Andrew, that's great, but what does that practically look like? Well, I want to share with you some training uh, materials that I, I was able to read through this year, and I think they're very helpful for helping us understand how the gospel actually enables us to curate our hearts to love Jesus more. The training starts off by saying this, why is the gospel central to our growth? To say the gospel is the answer to all we truly need is to say that Jesus is all we truly need. Therefore, we can never outgrow the gospel or allow it to be anything other than the center stage of our thinking. The gospel being the central, the center of our growth as a Christian, that's true because Jesus is always going to be the center of our growth as a Christian. And there's two fundamental reasons why this is the case. Number one, we're always sinners. We are always sinners. The gospel is a good news message because we never outgrow it, because we never stop needing all that Jesus is and has for us. 
earlier this uh, year, I was confronted with some areas in my life and suggested that I start doing some biblical counseling. And so I, uh, I embarked in this journey. And what's been so surprising to me is as I've, I've, as I've continued to, to go through this, there's been parts of my life that are broken in the way that I treat other people that I had no idea about. I didn't even know where they came from. I thought they were normal. You know, if you'd ask 20-year-old Andrew, like, you know, are, are you a sinner? I would have said, well, yeah, like, the, like, theoretically, yes, but I'm still a pretty good person. Like, Jesus didn't have to die that much for me. But now at 33, having grown in maturity, I look at my life, and I am oftentimes overwhelmed by the brokenness. The amount of pain I inflict on people that I say I love, the amount of disunity I cause on teams that I am in, that I say I'm, I'm there work, trying to work together for the kingdom of God. I'm a broken person. I'm a sinner. I never have outgrown my need for Jesus, and I never will. And neither will you. Now, if we stop here and just look at how bad we are, how needy we are, how helpless we are, we're going to fall into despair. But there's a second reality that keeps us filled with joy in this moment. And that second reality is that we are always God's beloved children. The way that the training states it, it says this, and yet at the very same time, because Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, and then willingly and lovingly died on the cross for, in our place, each of these sins, both subtle and hidden or overt and observable, have been fully, completely forgiven. Anytime I'm prone to look at myself with pride, the gospel reminds me I've never arrived and I never will. I never get to a point where I need Jesus. But every time I look at myself and think I am horrible and I can never make it and I am trending towards despair, the gospel comes in and reminds me, but you, were a, you are a beloved son of God. He laid his life down for you. How do our affections change for Jesus? The gospel. Let me fill this out a little bit more for you. If the gospel is not simply the ABCs of our faith, not the starting point or the entry point, but it's the way in which our faith is continually growing into maturity, then how do we grow in it? And what does it look like? Well, it actually follows the same pattern that coming to faith did. Repentance and faith. Repentance, turning away from what is not true and following Jesus. Doing a 180 back to him. So there's a couple of steps that it takes. First of all, as the gospel is applied to our lives, we start to see our sin, our need, and our brokenness in a new and deeper way. But then the gospel reminds us of the benefits of Jesus' completed work on the cross for our sin and our need for him through repentance and faith. And as we do, that completely changes our hearts. I didn't really fully understand this until a few years ago. I was struggling with an area of sin in my life that I just couldn't overcome. I've been trying to work on it for, uh, it seemed like a decade, maybe, maybe even more. And it just continued to, to be there, and I couldn't overcome it and overcome it. And I had this regime where I would start to beat myself up 
not physically, but like I, I would do something, I would sin, and then I'd say, I got to get myself right before I can come and approach Jesus. And I was reading a book, uh, we, we talk about it sometimes, it's called You Can Change by Tim Chester, Fan, fantastic book, highly recommend it. And in it, he just does this, he applies the benefits of the gospel to that issue. And he, he described how I was feeling. He said, you know, a lot of people when they're trying to change something and they fail at it, they get this overwhelming sense of shame and guilt. He said, that's not from God. Because if Jesus has died for you, he has taken your shame and he has taken your guilt. That's the result of you trying to be your own functional savior and you're failing at it. And so you feel shame and guilt at your own failure. But when you start to realize that Jesus has taken your shame and guilt upon himself, then you don't have to try and get yourself holy and right to approach him. Like you can approach him right then and there. And that completely changed everything for me. The next time I I screwed up, rather than trying to work myself back up to like a place of holiness, I simply went to Jesus. And I thanked him that he had died and taken my shame and guilt upon himself. And you know what happened? As that took root in my heart, I loved him more because I knew him more. What did Paul say in in chapter 3? That he wanted the church to have the power to understand the insurmountable love of Jesus, how wide, how high, how deep, how long the love of Christ was for them. In that moment, I started to understand it more and more. And what did it do? It changed my affections and I began to love Jesus more and more. I was curating my heart. And and here's the the next thing that happens. When we apply the benefits of Christ's ongoing work on the cross to to our lives, it allows us to live freely and love others extravagantly as God's beloved children. Because when you start to understand the grace and love that Jesus has for you, there's no way that you can hold on to bitterness or anger or frustration with your brother and sister. You just can't. When you continue to look at how broken you are and yet how much Jesus loved you, and you see someone who's screwing up and maybe even hurting you, You can't hold on to that anymore because you know that you were far worse in your offense to Jesus and yet he loved you still the same and he calls you a son, a brother. And this is what actually empowers us for God's mission, the gospel. We talk a lot about mission and and, uh, Chris will be talking about this more in uh, in his sermon on Go. But the underlying reality is if we want to continue to grow as a church on mission, the way we're going to do that is by growing in the gospel, by continually speaking the truth in love to one another. And before I continue on here, I just want to caution us. Because it's so easy for us to think through this again as thinking creatures. But if we try and do this in our own strength, by our own power, nothing will change. You see, what needs to happen is the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit. And without him actively at work in our life, both the person who is speaking the truth in love and the person receiving that truth, unless he's at work in both of those people, nothing's going to change. This type of whole person transformation that the New Testament describes 
It just can't be achieved by human means. It can't be achieved by good theology. It can't be achieved by well-functioning methodology. I'm going to talk in a second about some methods. What I want you to understand is the methods are not going to change you. The gospel is going to change you. And the gospel is only going to change you if the Holy Spirit softens your heart. Because on our own, we're prone to despair. We're prone to doubt and we're prone to mistrust as a result of our circumstances. But the Holy Spirit knows exactly where the gospel needs to be applied to our hearts. And so my encouragement for you is as you continue to gather together with other people, recognize that this is a process that the Holy Spirit needs to be front and center of. And you need to pray and ask him to continually soften both your heart and the heart of the person that you're speaking to. Now, the beautiful thing about this is Paul makes it clear that this isn't just some arbitrary statement of how we are to live, but it's done in a particular context. And that context is the body. He uses that word several times. In fact, this whole passage in chapter 4 is talking about the unity that we have in the body. He starts off by talking about the gifts that are given to the body, the gifts of leaders. And so my job, Chris's job, Nathan's job, Matt's job, Ken's job, Michelle's job, Brianna's job, all of your CG leaders' jobs, their job, what is it? Fundamentally, it's to speak the truth in love. Every week, as you hear a sermon, you should hear us bringing you back to the gospel of your salvation, the good news of what Jesus has done for you and who you are in light of that. But it's not just limited to the leaders in the church. Paul makes it clear that every single person in the church is to be someone who is speaking the truth in love. And he says, this is how we build each other up in unity into the fullness of Jesus. How do we grow? We grow by being gospel fluent. Now, I want to give you three realms of your life that I think that this can be played out. So first of all, I want to encourage you, if you don't regularly have a time where you're abiding with Jesus, then you need to start doing that. Fundamentally, discipleship, as I said, is being with Jesus. As we spend time with Jesus, we are reminded by him of who he is and what he's done. He applies the gospel to our hearts through his word, through his spirit. And if you're someone who's never developed a discipline, I want to just give you an easy starting point. I want to invite you this year to carve out four days a week, just four days. And each of those four days, wake up 15 minutes earlier than you normally would. For the first five, 10 minutes, get into the Bible. Uh, Start off somewhere that's going to be easy and accessible for you to understand. Start in the book of Ephesians. It's phenomenal. It does a great job of reminding us who Jesus is and what he's done. And then take another five, 10 minutes And as you read who Jesus is and what he's done and who's made you and who he's made you, pray and ask God to show you if there's places in your life where you're not believing that. And to be reminded in those moments of what is true based on who Jesus is and what he's done. The second realm I want to invite you into speaking the truth and loving is in your family. One of the things that we really deeply have noticed in this season is that uh, we have to continue to grow in our discipleship as a family. 
we don't know when we're going to be able to gather together and we can't rely on a gathering to be the primary place that our kids and our spouse is hearing about Jesus. We need to be doing that regularly at home. Uh, We want to see our kids grow. How do we do it? Speaking the truth in love. We want to see our spouse grow. How do we do it? Speaking the truth in love. If you're looking for a starting point, I want to share with you something that's been really helpful for my wife and I. And we're by no means great or, you know, the, the, the person that you should be trying to aim for. Uh, but this has been something that has been helpful for our own growth. Shannon and I, a little while ago, recognized that we needed these check-in points, but not just check-in points for our relationship. Like, that is really important. If you don't have check-in points in your relationship, you should probably have check-in points in your relationship where you could communicate regularly to each other what's going on inside of you and around you. But we knew that that time needed to be focused in not just on what is happening in our lives, but in actually speaking the truth and love to one another. And so most Saturdays, what we try and do is we wait until my daughter's asleep for her nap or we have someone come and watch her and we either go out or stay in and we sit down and we just share what's going on in each other's hearts and lives. But as we do so, we listen to each other and then we practice speaking the truth of the gospel back into it. And so when I'm feeling super stressed out about something, maybe finances are tight, my wife reminds me, hey, guess what, Andrew? You don't need to be stressed out. Well, of course I do. Finances are tight. Things are not looking good. No, you don't need to be stressed out. Why? Because Jesus is in control. And that means you don't have to be. You don't have to be, hun. And you know what? This is how you know he's in control because when it looked like he was most out of control, when he was crucified on the cross, where it looked like death had the final word, that was the means by which he brought about your salvation. If you can trust him for your eternal salvation, you can trust him to provide for us for this month. Or when Shannon is feeling down about being a mom and she's got mom guilt flowing in, I can remind her that, hun, you are not approved based on your work. But based on what Jesus has done for you, your momness is not, I don't know, is momness a word? Your motherhood? <laughs> your motherhood? It's not based on what you do. It's based on what Jesus has done. And you can trust him that when you fail, he won't. You're going to fail as a mom and that's okay because Jesus said that he had done what needed to be done on the cross for you. So you don't need to feel shame and guilt. You don't, need, you don't have anything to prove. So my encouragement to you is if you have a spouse and you're not regularly doing this, do it. You want to see your marriage grow closer together? Speak the truth in love. Do it with your kids. But finally, it's so important for us to do this as a church family as a whole. And the way that West Village organized ourselves so that this is a priority is that we have something called DNA groups. And for those of you not familiar with the term, DNA stands for Discover, Nurture, Act. What do we do? We get together with a couple other guys or a couple other gals and we simply get into the word of God and discover the gospel. And then we nurture each other's hearts. What is that? That's speaking the truth in love. So we take what we've learned, we listen to each other's stories, and then we apply the benefits of the gospel to each other's hearts so that we can turn from our unbelief back to belief in Jesus so that we can turn from the things that we're worshiping and worship Jesus. And as that takes root in our life and we move towards repentance and faith, then we start to act differently 
and we encourage each other to act differently in light of the gospel. In church, this is a fundamental way that if you want to grow as a disciple, you need to be part of. You need to have other people regularly in your life, a couple times a month, maybe once a week, to have that time set aside for you to have that message, that, that good news message, that gospel message spoken into your heart if you want to continue to grow as a disciple of Jesus. And so my challenge for you is, if you're not part of a, of a DNA group, write to me. Say, hey, I want to be part of a DNA group. If you're part of a community group that doesn't have DNA groups, start talking to your CG leader and saying, hey, I think we need to have DNA groups. And maybe this is the spirit working you saying, hey, hey, I want you to be a facilitator of DNA groups. And if you are in a DNA group, and this is not how you're regularly doing it, if it doesn't consist of you speaking the truth and love to one another, you need to reorient what you're doing around that. Because this is the means by which we will continue to grow in our love for Jesus. It's a way by which we spend time with him. And then through that, he continues to apply the gospel to our hearts and we become more like him. And as we become more like him, we're empowered to do what he did. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, I want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you that you have given us a means by which to grow in our discipleship, the gospel, and that you continually want to remind us of our need for you, that we never outgrow you, that we never stop needing you. So I pray, Father, for West Village Church, for each of the people who are tuned in this Sunday, for the people who are hearing the sermon live, that you would continue to see us grow as a church so that we can continue to do what you did and see a transformation in the city not for anything else, but out of a response of love for you. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.